before I get started, I would like to take a moment and just say thank you. Um, as a missionary that's supported by this church, it really means a lot to have the church's support and just to feel like we're partners together in our ministry. And I want to say that both on my behalf and on behalf of the other missionaries that you all support. Uh, we really do appreciate the support. We can't do what we do without it. And so we appreciate it. We're grateful for it. Thank you for it. You get the idea. When I was asked to speak, uh, one of the things that came to my mind, and you look at the bulletin, you'll see I, I picked the topic of choices. And every time I think about choices, I think of my father-in-law. He has a little saying that he says, and he re repeated often and often, uh, to the point it kind of became annoying. Since then, I've picked it up. I repeat it often, and it's becoming annoying to my family a little bit. But what he would say is, life is just full of little choices. And what kind of bugged me is he would say that maybe when I was debating which dessert to have, or he would say that if I was debating if I should move to a different city. So big choice, little choice, everything, he would keep using the same saying. Life is just full of little choices. And if, you know, after it got past the annoying part, I began to see some wisdom in it. You know, Lee is a man of a lot of wisdom. He came to Christ early in life, and then early in his marriage, he got some help on how to walk with God. He's a man of great discipline and perseverance, and that kicked into his walk with God. He was very faithful, regular times in God's Word and praying. And uh, One of the things he really put him, poured himself into is reading his Bible. He would read his Bible every year. It actually got to the point that he would get through, and a lot of times would finish up in September, October, and just start again. And I think by now he's probably read through the scriptures all the way through well over 50 times. And that's, I think, where a lot of his wisdom comes from. And so when you combine that exposure to the scriptures plus a lot of exposure to life, he began to see, and I, I am beginning to see now, how some of these things that we think are really big choices don't impact us a lot. But at the same time, some of the choices we make that seem insignificant can really have big results in our life. So, prepare to be annoyed. Life is just full of little choices. Now, as I thought about this in my own life, I came up with three significant choices that I have experienced. And I think most believers hit at some point in their life. As you can see in the outline, who will save me? What will guide my life? And who will meet my needs? So these are the things that I want to talk about this morning. But before we look at them, uh, let me pray for us. Father, we do want to thank you for bringing us here together and just ask that your word would speak to our hearts. Lead us and guide us into these choices and through these choices and help us to see your part in all of these things that we choose. Father, we know these are important and we trust you in them. And as I speak this morning, I'll allow your word be what rings true and what it, uh, remains in people's hearts. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Just a second. Uh, when I first started thinking about the three choices and this very first choice of who will save me, that all started way back when I was leading a Bible study with a bunch of international students. That's who our ministry is with. And we were talking about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And as I thought about it, I thought, you know, Adam is here. He's in this garden with all these trees. 
It's a paradise. It has abundant food, everything he needs. And there were these two trees, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And he had everything he wanted. Life was really good. And God just put one little rule on all of this. He just said, don't eat of the tree of knowledge and good and evil. He didn't say, don't run with scissors. He didn't say, stay in the speed limit. There was just one rule. All he had to do was not eat from that one tree. And as I started thinking about that, I was trying to figure out, why would God set this up like that? What was God really trying to achieve? And the more I thought about it, the more I thought God wanted Adam and Eve to make a choice. He wanted to give them the ability to choose something, to choose to obey or not, to experience the power of choice. Because there's a lot of power in choice. You know, it's only in choice that we can have faith. You know, if something is absolute, incontrovertible, there's no other evidence, no other option, when there's no choice, then that's not faith. That's just a fact. You know, love is only possible with choice. You can't mandate love. You can't force love. You can't hold a gun to someone's head and make them love you. You can't promise them any amount of money or anything to make them love you. They may act like they love you, but for it really to be love, they have to choose to love you. You know, and I think it's in choice that God is really glorified. I ask Wes's permission. Wes is Goldwater is a programmer. It would be very easy for him to write a program that when I did anything, pushed a key on the keyboard, walked across the room, that the computer screen would say, Doug is amazing. That's an easy program for him to write. He could probably do it before I finish this next sentence. But if he wrote a program that went in and noticed all of my actions, saw all that I was trying to do, looked at my heart, saw what was going on in it, and then compared it to lots of other people, and then a program popped up and said, Doug is amazing, I'm sure your first response would be, Wes is a terrible programmer. (laughs) But I think you get the idea that when there becomes a choice, things change. So if we're just mandated to do like robots, you know, anybody can make that happen. But when God sets us in a world and allows us to choose, all of a sudden, he can be glorified in some new ways. As I look at the different scriptures, I see lots of places where choice is given. Let's go to the, the word and look at some. Second uh, Chronicles 12:14 is just a little bitty phrase. I, I ran on it uh, this year when I was doing my read through the Bible. And it's talking about Asa. And it says, he did evil because he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. It seems like a little kind of inconsequential sentence, but really it says a lot in it. He made a choice. He chose what he didn't do. He did evil because he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. Now let me give a little aside on this verse. For This is something that struck me personally out of it. That this is something we need to do. We need to set our heart to seek the Lord. Because the world itself, Satan himself, our own flesh, are all channeling us towards evil. And so we have to make a distinct choice to seek the Lord. Back to other choices. Uh, Revelation 3.20 is such a great picture. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. 
If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. God is opening up the door to fellowship with him. And he doesn't say, I have the key and I'm coming in. He says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, there has to be a choice there to allow to have that kind of fellowship and intimacy with Christ. The other one that we probably think of a lot is just Israel. Uh, let's compare a couple different verses. In Deuteronomy 30, they're about to enter their promised land, and Moses gives this challenge. He says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I've set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants, by loving the Lord your God, by obeying his voice, and by holding fast to him. For this is your life and the length of days, that you may live in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, to Jacob, to give them. He set a choice before him. Then if you flip on through the Old Testament, end up at 2 Kings 17, we hear how it comes out. 2 Kings 17, verses 6 through 14. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria, excuse me, in the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and carried Israel away into exile to Assyria and settled them in Halah and Habor and on the river Gozen in the city of the Medes. Now this came about because the sons of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God who brought them up from the land of Egypt and under the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And they had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations who the Lord had driven out before the sons of Israel and in the custom of the kings of Israel, which they had introduced. The sons of Israel did these things secretly, which were not right against the Lord their God. And if you skip down a little bit. And there they burned incense on all the high places as the nations did which the Lord had carried away before them, provoking the Lord. They served idols, concerning which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this thing. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and every seer, saying, turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and statutes according to all the law which I commanded you and which I have sent through my servant the prophets. However, they did not listen, but stiffened their like, like their fathers, who did not believe in the Lord their God. So Moses put this great challenge before them to choose life. And their response was to choose to walk in the ways of the nations, to do things secretly that uh, were not right, to follow idols, to not listen to the prophets. They made a choice, a very clear choice. And as I think about this, it kind of leads me to that very first uh, question of who will save me. Because I think, as I look at Israel, as easy as it is to look at them and say, boy, I can't believe they saw all those miracles and did that. I would never do that. Uh, reality is, I've done that. I like Israel, and I think all of us can identify that we've done things that God doesn't want. We know what is right and haven't done it. We've missed the mark. We're less than God wants us to be. As it says in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. We still sin. 
we're broken people that aren't living up to God's glory. It's when we're alone and quiet, I think, and we look at our own hearts. We remember these things. We think of the things that we're ashamed of, places where we're not enough. We see inside us the failings that are, are abundant, and we try to hide from everyone around us, just like Israel was doing. Then it gets hard because we know that God's not going to let us into heaven with that kind of imperfection in our life. God is just, and there is going to be a penalty for wrongdoing. Romans 3.23 talks about the wages of sin is death. Hebrews 9.27 says, And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. And so it brings us to a point of choice. Who will I trust to save me? I really only have two options. It's going to be God or it's going to be me. Stuff can't save me. My friends can't save me. My family can't save me. Being born into a certain place or group doesn't save me. So it's either God will save me or I have to save myself. And so then at that point, I have to start asking myself, do I think that I am good enough, I do enough good to overcome all the wrongs I've done? Can I be good enough to make the cut? You know, are my good things really that good? And I know in my own story, I thought that. I very much believed that. Because what I did is uh, well illustrated in Philippians 3.9. Paul's kind of sharing his testimony, and one little phrase he puts in there is, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. And that describes a lot of what I did. I knew what the law was and what all the things that God expected of me. And instead of taking that, I just kind of made it into a buffet, like at a cafeteria. I'll go through and I'll say, um, okay, I'll take going to church, but less I'm not going to put on my list. And I'll take not being angry, because I do all right on that one, but I'm going to leave off jealousy. You know, maybe I'll take not cussing and forget about uh, something else like coveting. And so what I did is instead of taking the whole law, I picked and choose and got this nice little law that fit me. And as I looked at that, it's kind of like, ha, huh, I can do this. I fit that one. They're all the things I thought I could do. And I thought, okay, I'm going to be good enough. But then all of a sudden, one night, a kind of a special uh, thing happened. Our church was having, the church I grew up in, was having uh, a special meeting where speakers came in. And that night, they had people come and talk about their personal relationship with Christ. And I listened, and that was great. And they took the youth, and he said, all right, all the youth go off to this room, and you'll have your own thing over there. So I went with them. And as we were in that room, we were supposed to make a graph of our spiritual life. I'm like, okay, I can do that. Mine is kind of shaky, going downhill. I accept Christ, kind of shaky, but the general trend is going uphill. And I shared that with everybody. And as I did, I realized, oh, I'm lying. And all of a sudden, this law that I had built for myself, where lying was on this side, I am now convicted of it. I am a liar, and I can't do anything about it. And this point at the bottom where I said I accepted Christ as my Savior, I never did that. And so God stuck me at that point. He gave me no way to turn. And by his grace, that night I went down to our sanctuary and accepted Christ as my Savior. 
It's kind of fun. I can still remember the exact seat and the exact pew and place where I sat and did that. You know, it's like it says in John 5, 24. He who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but has passed out of death into life. I heard God's word. God's word convicted me. And that night I believed and have eternal life. My eternity was set at that time. Now, before I take too much credit for this, I need to have a little confession. When I was preparing for this, I kind of wrote it all out, sent it to Todd, just to get his feedback and get some input on it. Todd was very affirming, but he pointed out one area that was missing. He pointed out how in this choice and in the other choices I'll talk about, I'd kind of left out God's role and how God was being a, a part of these decisions. And it, again, stuck to my heart. Not because I'd left that out, but because it really pointed to a, just a big area in my life where God has continued and is continuing to point. Just my level of independence. I'm a good old West Texas boy, and I like to say I did it. And I'm the one who did it all and take credit and build myself up by, by my own bootstraps and by my own strength. But the reality is when I look at what God did for months before he had been doing things in my life to prepare me for this decision. And even as I get up close to it, you know, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 talks about, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. So the faith that I had when I believed in Christ, that was God's gift to me. It wasn't something that was already inside me because I was so good. I wasn't there. It was a gift God gave. He gave me the gift of faith, and in that faith is what saves me. Now, how his gift and my choice, how those two things interact, don't have that figured out yet. I know there's a lot of talk about those things. If anyone has that figured out, please come talk to me after. I would love to get a little more information on that. But I think we can know both things are true. God pursues us. He works to chase us down to save us. And I think there is a point where we need to make a choice also. Now, I shared this choice with you for two reasons. Uh, one, I think there may be, I know there's a chance that someone in the audience here has grown up and was in the situation that I am. You may have been going to church for a long time and think, you know, I think I'm just good enough. I think I'll, be, I'll get by. I'll make it. When in reality, that's not true. We can't be good enough. It may be a time when you need to stop and put your faith in Christ instead of yourself for your salvation. The other reason I wanted to share this is I think for the rest of us, we need to be reminded that this, it, it's what God has done. It's not our doing good that gets us to heaven. We can't read the Bible enough, pray enough, do enough good works, none of those things. They will not save us. Christ alone saves us. And we need to stop on a regular basis and thank him for that. And remember that he is the one who saved us. That it's his work. And so this kind of leads me to the second choice. But before I get there, I want to clarify something. That until you've made this choice of who will save me, the other ones don't really matter. They're insignificant. If anything, they will lead you away into trusting yourself more. So as you start looking at who will guide my life and who will meet my needs, remember it has to come off of the foundation of who saves me. The foundation of Christ is the one who saves me. And so the second question, or choice, that uh, is, to me was a big part of my life, 
was who will guide my life. For me, this hit when I was in college. Um, the, at that time, there was a phrase that we, all the Christians used and threw around and talked about, and it was the lordship decision. People would ask you, have you made the lordship decision? And that was just talked about a lot. It was something that it kind of assumed that everyone did it. It was definitely something different from salvation, and it was something that was a very clear choice and almost a point in time. Like you could say, yes, I did on September 23 at 7.15. It would almost be that exacting as when we talked about it. It was like you made the ultimate commitment, like you were all in. For me, that decision came as a freshman when I was at Tech. Uh, I was in the Clement side of Hewlett Clement dorm, and I loved it. It was air-conditioned, it was in pretty good shape, it was co-ed, great place to be. Um, there were a number of upperclassmen that lived there, and so a lot of the freshman junk and stupidity got mellowed down. Did I mention it was co-ed? That was a factor. The Navigator ministry I was involved in uh, had seen a lot of fruit in a different dorm, uh, Carpenter Wells. It was unair conditioned. It was almost all guys. No, I mean, excuse me, it was all guys. And it's, as far as I know, somebody may correct me on this, it's the only dormitory on campus that didn't get renovated. It got condemned. It is no longer standing. They tore it down and replaced it with apartments. So you can imagine how much difference there was between these two. Well, a leader in, in my Bible study challenged me to move out of Hewlett Clement, co-ed, air conditioned, to Carpenter Wells, a bunch of stupid freshman guys doing stupid freshman guy stuff for the sake of ministry. Now, just moving to move was no big deal. But as I thought about this choice, God really pierced my heart because I began to realize this choice wasn't about where I was living. This choice was about who's going to lead my life. Am I going to follow what Christ wants and what Christ wants me to give my life to, or am I going to follow what I want to give my life to and try to be comfortable and just do things that I like? And it became a watershed moment. And by the grace of God, I made the choice. I did move to uh, Carpenter Wells. And God blessed that and allowed my life to be reproduced in some other people and got to see some fruit from that choice. As I talk about that lordship decision now, it's kind of funny because it was almost like I was determining if Christ was Lord or not, like I was giving him permission to be Lord. And to me, that's such an ironic, funny statement because it's just not true. Christ is Lord. There is no debate. There is nothing to discuss about that. And my choice doesn't make him Lord or not. He's Lord anyway. A couple scriptures for you. Uh, Nehemiah 9.6 You alone are the Lord. You have made the heavens, the heaven of heavens and all their host, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them, and the heavenly host bows down before you. Doesn't get much clearer. You are, you alone are the Lord. Psalm 97, 9, same thing. For you are the Lord most high over all the earth. You are exalted above all gods. And to me, one of the places where this whole idea becomes clearest is in Philippians uh, 2, verses 10 and 11. 
So at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of the Father. To me, this makes it most clear that when Christ returns, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord. So at that point in time, there is no debate. Everyone agrees. Everyone in the world says he is Lord. Well, what is true is that time includes now. He is Lord over all the earth. And so the choice is, am I going to live like that is true and Christ is Lord and allow him to be Lord of my life? Or am I going to live in denial of that fact? Like I'm really in control. You know, Lord is defined as a person who has authority over others. So am I willing to give Christ authority over my life? Or am I going to live as I deem right and best? You may wonder what that would look like. Uh, Luke 6.46 gives a clear picture. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? So if Christ is Lord of your life, you do what he says. It's what guides your life. He leads me. For a while, I've had the thought of every act of my life being an act of obedience. Now, I've since come to realize that's overplaying it a little bit. I can't live like that. But it's a good thought to think about, that everything I'm doing being driven as following Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15 is a verse I've memorized recently that I like a lot in this. It says, For the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died... Therefore, all died, and he died so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Let me read it again. He died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Not living for myself, but living for Christ. So sometimes you may wonder, you know, so who is my Lord? How do I tell what I'm living for? Think about what you sacrifice for what. Do you sacrifice family time for work? Do you sacrifice health for junk food? Do you sacrifice God, time with God for social media? These kind of trade-offs help us to see what's really the Lord of our life and what's really driving our life. You know, you can always look at your calendar. Where's your time going to? Or your checkbook. Where's your money? These are the things that will help us see what's really our Lord. We want Christ to be our Lord, not these functional lords that take control of our life. Luke 16, 13 talks about how no servant, no servant can serve two masters. You will either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. So on that one, it will come to a head. And I think in every one of these, you know, every one of these little lords that we have in our life, at some point, we will come to a point of conflict where we're going to have to choose. Am I going to follow the, this little God in my life, or am I going to make Christ Lord of my life? You know, one of the places that this has struck me and continues to strike me is just in the area of pleasing men, doing what others expect of me, trying to gain approval for people around me. That's why standing up here in front of you is a bit of a challenge for me. 
because I want approval. I want acceptance. Now, my seeking of approval and acceptance hasn't ever led me to do anything illegal or what most would call immoral, but that doesn't mean it's not still sin for me. When I make a choice to do something just to get man's approval, that's not right. That's putting man in the place of Lord. God really convicted me on this with uh, Galatians 1.10. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Again, it helps us to see how we really have one choice between two things. I can please men and do what? Seek their favor and what they want, or I can be a bondservant of Christ. I can't do both. I want to choose to be the bondservant. And so we have to ask, who is guiding my life? Now, once you've made that choice, once I made that choice, the next step was, okay, Lord, I want to do what you want. Now, what do you want me to do? And I started realizing I have different needs that are hitting my life. And so the, the last choice here that we want to talk about is who will meet my needs. You know, Maslow created a theory about needs. He listed five main areas. Physi um, physiological needs of food and water and warmth and rest. Safety needs for safety and security. A need of belonging and love. A need for esteem, a value and accomplishment. And a need for fulfillment. I mean, we may use those words. We may use the words of just love and acceptance and worth and forgiveness. But the reality is we all have needs. And we have to ask, where am I going to get those needs met? What am I going to do to have my needs met? And as I came up with, I came up with four different options. There may be more, but I'm going to talk about four. The first one I thought about is I could try to have other people meet my needs. But the reality is we end up putting a burden on people that they're unable to carry. How many times have we seen a movie or maybe even in friends' lives where a couple broke up because the other one was too needy? The more we expect the people to meet our needs, the more we're going to be disappointed. Because one of two things is going to happen. Either they're going to have a burden that they know they can't carry. All of a sudden, they're going to have more and more needs pushed on them that they know they can't fulfill. Or I would be disappointed because they're not fulfilling my needs. But either way, when we expect a person or a group of people to meet all my needs, it will just destroy the relationship. It will end the relationship. So people aren't a great viable option to have all my needs met. I put down trying to meet my own needs, and I know all, some of us do that. I know I've tried to do that. But God has not designed us that way. He's designed us to be relational. A lot of the needs that we have can only be met by someone else. Could you imagine what this world would be like if we could meet our own needs? There would be absolutely no interaction. We would have no reason to ever connect with another person if we could meet our own needs. We'd all just walk around bumping into each other, work, living life around each other, and never connecting. We're made to meet each other's needs. I think a good picture of that is solitary confinement. That's why solitary confinement in prison is such a powerful thing. Being isolated helps you see, I need people. It's a true punishment to be alone like that. So besides people not meeting my needs and me not meeting my needs, I think some people turn to things 
to meet my needs. You know, some people think that if I have the right car or the right house or live in the right neighborhood or wear the right clothes, maybe be a part of the right group, that I'll be okay, that that'll meet my needs. You know, for me, it was a much simpler thing. Um, still struggle with it today. Sweets. Now you may think, oh, that's so innocent. But it's still a need that I'm trying to seek from something else. It started when I was young. I was growing up, coming home from school, my mom would sit down with me at the table and ask me about my day and would have, she'd always have a snack for me. It was a cookie or a piece of pie or a cake or something. And that became a very comforting time. And so what has happened is I've realized a lot of times when I get stressed, that's where I go. Oh, let me have a little piece of candy or let me have a cookie or something. And the problem isn't the candy or the cookie. The problem is me thinking that's going to make me okay. Me taking my need to that thing, hoping that thing will meet my need when Christ wants to step in and meet that need. You know, I know I'm not alone. I know some people view food this way. We've all seen people who look at alcohol or drugs this way. And all the same response. You may feel good for the moment, but after that moment, the need is still there and still unmet. So the, the last thing I could come with up with as a way to meet my needs is to go to God himself. You know, Matthew 6 has a couple interesting uh, comments, verses in it. Uh, Matthew 6.32, he says, For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. So he knows that we need. It's no surprise to him for God himself. Earlier in that same chapter, Matthew 6, 8, um, so do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. So not only does God know that you need something, he knows what you need. Well, that's great, but it gets really better. Philippians 4, 19, and my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So God himself knows that we need. He knows what we need, and then he promises to fulfill those needs. There's a solution we can live with. We can go to Christ himself to have our needs met. Now, I was, another verse that puts a really interesting twist on this is Jeremiah 31.3. The Lord appeared to him from afar, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. So God is drawing us to himself, but we have needs. I think we need to look at needs a little differently. I think we start, need to start seeing our needs as paths that draw us to God, not as failings or in, insufficiencies. That when we have a need, God is creating a way and saying, come to me. I can meet that need and giving us a choice to make. Can't, will I go to him to have that need met? So you may ask, how do I let God meet my needs? It's pretty simple, but pretty complex too. John 15, 4 and 5 talks about abiding. Abide in me and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. What a great picture. We have this vine coming up with branches coming off of it. And we know 
everything that branch needs, it's getting from the vine. Christ clearly says he is the vine and we are the branches. But he wants us to get what we need from him, to live in him, to dwell in him. You know, so you may ask, all right, so how do I abide? Turn to Mark 4. Now, God did something unique this morning. Um, we're going to, the Mark 4 passage, uh, verses 13 to 20, is the explanation of the parable of the sower. It just happened that in ABF this morning, Carrie was teaching on the parable of the sower. And it was just kind of a nice confirmation I'm going to read through this passage, and it's talking about how a man relates to God's Word. And I think this will give us a lot of insight as to how we can abide, and the part of abiding that is connected to God's Word. Verse 13, and he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? And how will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the Word. So that sets the foundation. He's talking about the Word coming into us. And these are the ones beside the road whom the word was sown. And, and when they hear it, immediately Satan comes away and takes the word which had been sown to them. It's talking about the ones sown on the road. And they hear God's word and they don't even listen. Doesn't even matter, doesn't take root, doesn't matter, just forget it. That's the first response. And in a similar way, these are the ones on whom the seed was sown on the rocky places. When they hear the word, immediately they receive it with great joy, and they have no firm root in themselves. They are only temporary. But when affliction or persecution arise because of the word, immediately they fall away. The picture that comes to my head is somebody that says, January 1st, I'm reading through the Bible this year. January 3rd, well, it's a valiant try. I'll try again next year. Great heart, great desire, but no commitment. They really didn't commit themselves to doing anything. The next group, verse 18, and the others are ones who the word was sown among the thorns. And these are the ones who have heard the word, but the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the dire for other things enter in and choke the world, and it becomes unfruitful. To me, this is another picture of what happened with Asa. He didn't set his heart. So these people were in the word, and they were doing well, but all of a sudden, the desire for other things or riches... Maybe they start thinking, you know, I'd really like my family to have a better vacation this year. I'm going to work a little extra in the mornings. I know that's really going to cut back my time in the Word, but my family gets a vacation. Or maybe something else, but these are the things, the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desire for other things, choke out the Word. So all of a sudden, after maybe months, maybe years, they realize they're not in the Word like they used to be. It's not having the impact on their life. And then the last group. And those on whom the seed was sown, the good soil, and they hear the word and accept it. And I think that's what a part of abiding is for us. We hear God's word and we learn from it. We allow God to speak to our hearts. And they bear fruit, 30, 60, and 100 fold. And as I was hearing this this morning when Carrie was talking, I was thinking of it doesn't say what kind of seed this is, but I was thinking of grass seed. You know, and grass comes up, and after a while, it puts out more seed. And all of a sudden, that seed is now going into good soil and growing more grass and putting out more seed. 
And so as we allow God's word to have an effect in us, that will then become reproducing in the people around us. So besides God's word, I think we can abide with God and have him meet our needs through prayer. John 15, 7 says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So when we're abiding like this, we can just ask God for what we need. Doesn't guarantee he's going to give it. Because he promises to provide our needs, not our wants. But he wants us to come with our needs. You can also see that in Psalm 62, 8. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your hearts before him. God is a refuge for us. So when we hit those hard places in life, when we don't really understand what's going on and have great needs, to choose to pour out our heart to God. Now what's interesting is God is not going to learn anything new when you do that. He already knows what's going on in your heart. He's not going to be surprised by it or shocked by it. But what's going to happen is intimacy develops. And it develops when we share our heart with God, we become close with him. And as we become close with God, all of a sudden our needs are met in different ways. And so we have three questions before us. You know, first, is Christ our Savior? And I think we need to check ourselves on that. Are we looking to Christ to be our Savior? If I died tonight, can I stand here with confidence knowing, I trust Christ, he'll take care of me. His payment for my sin is sufficient. You know, are we submitting to the Lord? Am I following where he leads? Is my life marked by obedience? Is there something I know God is asking me to do or to consider that I'm delaying or debating? And then lastly, am I seeking to have him meet my needs? Or am I looking to someone else or something else? Do I spend regular time with God in word and prayer? And if not, why not? Or what am I using to meet my needs that isn't Christ? Let me pray for us. Father, I do want to thank you that you pursue us, that you draw us to yourself, and you give us salvation. And Father, I thank you also that you are the Lord. You are the authority over our lives. And ask that you will help us to turn to you as that and obey in all things. And Father, lastly, I ask that you will help us to turn to you and allow you to meet our needs where so many other places and things can't. Help us to turn to you to be all of our life. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You're dismissed.